I'd like everybody to take your left hand and stick it out like this. All right. We're going to sing together and we're going to clap as we sing and we're going to do it in a rhythm of six. You're going to uh, clap the person's hand to your left, your, your right, sorry, your right. Their left hand, your leg, your leg, the bottom of your hand and down twice on your own. One, two, three, four, five, six. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up. There you go. That's not too bad. All right, here we go. We're going to sing. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. There is only one God. There is only one King. There is only one body. That is why we sing. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. Excellent. Now I'd like you to take your left hand and take your Bibles and turn me to the passage that is the foundation for that song. Ephesians chapter 4 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We started looking at this paragraph last week. We're going to finish that today, and uh, so it would be helpful if you would have your Bibles turned to Ephesians 4. And again, if you don't have a copy of the Bible um, at all, we would be pleased if you would take one of the Bibles in the pews, uh, take it home with you as a gift from us. We would love for you to have a copy of, of God's Word. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. You follow along as I read from my translation of uh, the New International Version, this translation I will read. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If you have been around uh, grace for any length of time, you have heard me say at least uh, once that that it is essential for every follower of Jesus Christ uh, to join themselves to the fullest extent possible to a local body of believers. Um, at our church, that, that entails uh, membership. But regardless of the congregation of which you are a part, uh, living independently as a follower of Jesus Christ is outside of the expectations of the New Testament. And today, I want to spend a few minutes with you talking about 
why I believe it's true, why I believe that it's essential for those who are followers of Jesus Christ to join themselves to the fullest extent possible to a local body of believers. Uh, why does it matter? Why is it uh, um, that we must grapple with this? Whether or not you're a Christian, you have to grapple with this fact that following Christ is not a solitary affair, that, that following Christ places this demand on your life. I imagine that without a tremendous amount of effort, you could probably come up with some reasons why it, it seems essential. Uh, perhaps you could say uh, community is important for life. You don't need to be a Christian to think that. Socrates wrote about how dangerous it was to be isolated. Um, it's dangerous to be alone. But, but specifically, as a follower of Christ, you need encouragement, you need care, you need accountability, you need the support and love that comes with being part of a local church. That, that's true. Perhaps uh, you could say that joining yourself to a local body of believers is crucial not only because community is important, but maybe you'd say that because we have different gifts. Uh, one of our goals is to present a full-orbed uh, picture of Jesus Christ to the world. And we need different sets, uh, different sorts of people in our church. We need people who are compassionate, and we need people who have administrative skills, and we need people who are good teachers and skilled evangelists. Uh, we need people with a diversity of, of natural talents. We need singers and musicians, and we need leaders, and we know, need those who are skilled with their hands and those with technical skills. Both of those reasons that I mentioned, uh, the necessity of community and, and the difference of our gifts, uh, they're true, and both of them are important, and both of them are emphasized in different ways in the book of Ephesians. But today, before us, is a passage of Scripture that tells us that our unity together as believers and the necessity of pursuing that unity together is bigger than both what you need and bigger than what you can give, what sort of gifts you have. In fact, uh, unity, Paul is going to argue here, is as big as God himself. The necessity of striving for and with other believers is grounded in the very nature of God. Uh, let me briefly walk you through this paragraph that we have been talking about here these days. Um, remember, uh, one of my goals is to help you think your way through the book of Ephesians. So indulge me for just a moment. We started in chapter 4. There's this major transition that takes place in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul moves from writing about what God has done in chapters 1 through 3 to uh, our response to that in chapters 4 through 6. Um, this is how we flesh out his work. Or if I could use terms that we've already used uh, through Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 3 is how God fills us, and Ephesians 4 through 6 is how we overflow uh, with the grace of God. Uh, chapter 4 begins with this command in verse 1 where he says, Live lives or walk worthily of the calling that you have received. Live lives that match the gospel. One of the reasons that we think so much and we try to talk so much about the gospel is because everything we do as followers of Jesus Christ is wrapped in this. The gospel is to show up in every part of your life. How you work, how you relate to friends, how you relate to your family, 
how you think about money, how you think uh, about the government. The gospel is at the center of all of that. And we are to, as Paul says, live worthily of the gospel or live in a way that matches the gospel. And one of the first places that he turns to when he thinks about this worthy life is the unity of the body. That's where he starts, the unity of the church. And in verses 1 through 3, he identifies those four virtues that we talked about uh, last week that are essential for making it in the the body. Uh, Patience, gentleness, humility, forbearance. We talked about those last week, and I'm glad I did. (laughs) Right after the service, I discovered that I had made a scheduling error with our small group leaders. Um, I, I dropped the ball. And after that sermon that I preached, none of them could be mad about it. It's beautiful. I said, please forbear in love, and they agreed. They had to at that moment in time. I'm going to preach sermons like that more often, actually, I think. And, and as their servants, I was giving them an opportunity to immediately apply God's Word. It was a marvelous gift on my part. Now, in verses 4 through 6, Paul turns his attention to the reason that we're supposed to pursue unity. Why we make the effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And perhaps as I read it, you noticed in verses 4 through 6, there's almost this rhythm, this pattern to this passage. There are seven one statements. In fact, if you're one of the people who writes in your Bible and marks it up, maybe in those verses you should circle or underline all the instances of the word one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. These seven one statements that are uh, punctuated by the members of the, bo- of the Godhead, Spirit, Lord, Father. Um, scholars debate about whether or not Paul here is quoting a hymn. Maybe we have a little hymn here. Or a, an early church creed. Or maybe a Paul wrote this hymn for this book. Uh, this would not be the only place, if it is a creed or a hymn, this would not be the only place in the Bible, in the New Testament, where Paul quotes from what seems to be an early hymn or an early creed of the church. You might think of Philippians 2, where Paul, speaking of the Lord Jesus, said, "...who, being in very nature with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself unto death." even death on the cross. Wherefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a song worth singing. It's in Philippians 2. Is this a song? Well, maybe. Is it a creed? It might be a creed. If it's a creed, though, most creeds of the church start by speaking about God the Father, God the Son, and then God the Spirit. And this, the order is reversed here in this passage because he starts Spirit, Son, Father. I, I don't know the original form of these verses, but what I do know is that the passage tells us that the unity of the church for followers of Jesus Christ is as big as God Himself. It's rooted in who He is and what He has done. It's important that you get that. The reason that you need to get that is because without too much effort, you could probably dismiss the other ideas or the other reasons why people give for, for pursuing a church. 
Uh, you could probably rationalize them, uh, reason, rationalize away the reasons why you should invest in a church. Um, maybe, uh, if, if you think about community being important, maybe you're not receiving the benefits that the community is supposed to offer. This is supposed to be a place for encouragement and care and accountability. And if that's not happening, do you need to stay? Do you need to um, uh, keep investing in a place that's just a continual disappointment? Do I have to stay if the church isn't working the way it's supposed to? You can rationalize that away. Maybe you could rationalize even, uh, uh, you could convince yourself that your gifts don't really matter. You're not using them, it doesn't seem to make a difference, there doesn't seem to be a hole that you can fill Sometimes people tell me on occasion, they say, Pastor, I can do this and I'll do it any way you want. And, and I, sometimes I don't have an immediate answer for them of a, of a hole that they can fill or a place that they can serve. If you're not needed, do you have to be here? Do you have to participate? It's possible to rationalize away many of the reasons that people cite for joining themselves to a, a local congregation. But in verses 4 through 6, Paul appeals to God himself, and you cannot rationalize God away. The unity of the church is founded on who he is, his immensity. You cannot duck him, you can't get past him. He's larger than your concerns, he's more significant than your needs. He's greater than your experiences and infinitely worthy of your submission. Brothers and sisters, I have the privilege of of calling you on the basis of the Word of God which describes to us the immensity of the wonder and the glory of God, the only great God, to make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And you do it for God's sake. For His, the sake of Him who is high above all other people and things in the universe. Uh, Paul's calling you out of yourself in the vastness of God's glory and the doorway to God's glory is marked church. As I mentioned here, there are seven one statements in this paragraph and I want to walk with them, uh, walk through them with you this morning according to their Trinitarian shape. So uh, because of that shape, there's going to be three movements in the remainder of our, our time together. These three affirmations. First of all, unity is a result of the work of one spirit. Unity is the result of the work of one spirit. Paul's talking here about the Holy Spirit and he emphasizes two activities of the spirit. We are placed together by the spirit in one body, one body. Now, by body, Paul is talking here about the universal church, uh, though this is also true of the local church, too. The church, um, is, is, as a body, is a prominent image in the book of Ephesians. Uh, actually, in all of Paul's letters. We're going to talk about this more in the weeks that are to come, but as, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about this body imagery, and he wants us to think about the various gifts that we have. Uh, Uh, Those who are followers of Jesus Christ have been gifted by God with skills and abilities to bring the church as a whole to maturity. That's the point. But our diversity, which I mentioned before a while ago, the different gifts that we have, is, is not a product of just our natural talents 
And it's not something that's just nice. You know, we don't sit around and think, it would be nice if we had someone who could do this. That, that, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about here that, that our diversity of gifts is the will of the sovereign Holy Spirit who has placed you in a local body of believers for you to use the gifts that He has given you. And He is like a master mosaic artist who, who takes us and places us just where He wants us to be for His glory in this beautiful mosaic that He is making. We are one body. That's why we pursue unity because the Spirit has placed us together in one body. He has also, though, called us to one hope. He's placed us together in one body and He has called us, secondly, Paul says, to one hope. Verse 4 says, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Literally, uh, grammatically, we are in one body that's formed by the Spirit because we have been called to the same hope. The calling to hope precedes and prompts the placing of us together in the body. The Spirit has united us together in the fact that we have one hope. We are all hoping for the same thing. Harold Honer, in his excellent commentary on Ephesians, writes this. Let me quote him. The word hope means the eager expectation of the outworking of God's plan. That's what hope means. I eagerly expect the outworking of God's plan. The hope presented in Ephesians is the reality that all things will be headed up in Christ and though the believers are presently seated with Christ, in the future they will be displayed in heaven as trophies of grace. Further, they have been brought near to God, united with one united into one body in Christ and reconciled to God. Before this, they were without hope and without God in the world. Hence, there is an element of objective hope which is laid up for the believers and this serves as the basis for the subjective hope. Objectively, God is going to accomplish His purposes and because God is going to fulfill His word, I hope in that. I, I subjectively, I have hope in this firm hope that is God's. Hope for believers, Honer continues, is not the world's hope so, but the absolute certainty that God will deliver what He has promised. We're united together because we're aiming at the same thing. We have the same hope, the outworking of God's good plan. The hope that unites us is this reality that one day all things will be visibly under the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure that most of you have had an experience sometime where you've been going somewhere that you didn't know where it was, you're traveling. I remember several years ago, I was uh, one of the first times that I was flying. I don't fly in an airplane very often. Some of you fly much more often than I do. But the last time I was in an airport flying, I went to my gate, I made it there, and I sat down and uh, was ready for the flight to be called. And lo and behold, an announcer came on and said, uh, no, that's not what they said. They said... Um, if you want to get on this plane, you've got to go get it to another gate. Oh, I just, in this huge airport, I just found where I'm supposed to be, and now I've got to get up and go find somewhere else. Different terminal, different gate. I, I was sitting there, with, I, I looked around and I saw all these people, and they all grabbed their luggage and got up, and we all got up together. And I thought to myself, at least we're all going to the same place. 
We might not know where we're going, but we're going there together. And there's, there's confidence, there's a surety in this. There's, there is a little bit of buoyancy. If, we're, if we get lost, at least we'll all be together when we get lost. And you can look for people. There's that lady with the red suitcase, and there's that man with his child. And you can follow, we can make it there together. There's, there's a little bit of buoyancy in life about that. And that buoyancy is ours as followers of Jesus Christ, because we're headed to the same place. This word hope is, is a reminder for us in the text that Christianity is a faith of hope. We're hope-filled people. I've mentioned in the last um, few weeks, uh, a couple months ago maybe, that there are many people in the congregation at this point in time who are facing difficult personal circumstances. Um, there are people in, walking through grief and financial pressures and shaky marriages and significant battles with depression and discouragement, parenting troubles, uh, diseases, many people in our church. I, I, I trust that you're not hiding these things from the members of your small group. Uh, Pastor Scott and I were talking about some of the needs in the church and, and what programs and things we can do to help meet those needs this week. And, and um, Scott was talking about uh, element... 26 the men's ministry and youth ministry and young adults and and he said this is a lot he said can you do anything to help me as we wade through this and i said you mean you want me to do something to reduce the neediness of the people (laughs) he said no that's not going to happen really but in the in the midst of, of what appears to be hopeless circumstances we are called to hope and a, there is an objective hope. We are waiting for the day when Christ is unveiled and His work is consummated and everyone will see His great work. And in that day, we're going to see the fruit of what God is working out in our lives even as He is leading us through trouble. And, and because of that hope, we can stand next to each other. We can stand with one another. We can say, someday, someday all of this will be unveiled and you'll see, we'll see together God's good work in our lives through these perilous, these difficult, these challenging times. You, you might feel lost, but you're going to the same place. There are people around you this morning who need to be reminded of that today, who need to be reminded of the call to hope, that we have been called to this hope. You might not see it. You might not see it in the few minutes before the service when you talk to them about the weather and the few minutes after the service when you talk to them about the Super Bowl, but they're still here. And they still need this reminder of of hope. We've been called together by the Spirit to one hope, and He has placed us together in one body. Unity is a result of the work of one Spirit. Secondly, unity is the work of one Lord. Unity is the result of the work of one Lord. Now, the word Lord here refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. This affirmation in reference to Jesus would have been countercultural for these Jews and Gentiles gathered together in Ephesus because it was a common statement in Ephesus when they would gather for public festivals, they would affirm Artemis, the the goddess of the temple in Ephesus. They would say, Artemis is Lord, Artemis is Lord. But for Christians, it is uh, uh, unquestionable that you must say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. That's our affirmation. 
Our allegiance to Him is expressed in our commitment to one faith. Our commitment to one faith. Now, the New Testament uses the word faith in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, it talks about the faith as a body of teaching that we believe. There is the Christian faith. That's truth statements. The New Testament also uses the word though faith to talk about our confidence in that, our trust in that, our faith. We have faith in the faith. <laughs> Paul uses those words that way. Which is this talking? Is Paul talking about here the truth, the objective truth that we all believe, or is Paul talking about our experience of trusting in it? Which is the emphasis here? I think Paul here is talking about the doctrine, the truth that we affirm. Um, our allegiance to Christ is expressed in our commitment to this one faith, this common teaching of the apostles. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us what is central to this teaching. For what I receive from the Lord, I also... Uh, that's from 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. We are united in our affirmation of that truth. Christ died for our sins and rose again. Now, this appeal to one faith unmasks some of the contemporary thinking when it comes to the Bible and the origins of Christianity. If you go to the bestseller list of the New York Times, uh, you will find some books written by very skilled writers and um, uh, very impressive historians who argue that the early church, in the early church, there wasn't one faith. That there were many different types of groups and they, they may have used the name of Jesus, but they, there was a variety of beliefs all around the Mediterranean. There wasn't one central faith statement. And, and what we have in the Bible is, is uh, just one of those messages. This actually, uh, the Bible was put together by the winners. And, and, and this is the truth that, that one group believed and they eradicated all the other truth statements and this is what we're left with. But there are scholars who make that claim. If you read any books by a man by the name of Bart Ehrman, if his name sounds familiar to you, that was what he will argue. Now, this passage unmasks that belief. Paul in the first century is saying, for followers of Jesus Christ, there is one faith. There is one teaching that comes from the apostles that is centered around that message that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This appeal to one faith also helps us think about the associations that we have today with others who are outside of our church. We do not believe that there are only going to be Baptists in heaven. In fact, if there are just Baptists in heaven, it will be probably boring. Um, nor, nor do we believe that our membership list in, the, in our church is the sum total of the working of the kingdom of God in Lancaster County. We don't, we don't believe that. But this phrase, this phrase, one faith, reminds us that uh, those we are most closely associated with who are outside of our church are the ones who hold to this one faith and we can associate in Christian fellowship with those who don't hold to that one faith. Uh, Brian Chappell, who is an uh, upstanding Presbyterian, wrote this. Listen. 
It is not uncommon to hear these words spoken in ecumenical settings to minimize the importance of the distinctions of our individual churches or denominations. And in truth, there is an implicit calling here to recognize the ultimate unity of all those who are truly Christ's. But the proper emphasis is on affirming what is true. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This call to unity is not a justification for anything goes and nothing really matters, but rather a calling to constantly examine our church, our denomination, and our traditions to make sure that they cohere with and are dictated toward the truths of Scripture. We are called out of our separateness not to do as we please, but to direct our faith and practice toward the truths given to us by the testimony of Scripture. This calling also causes us to honor brothers and sisters of other churches and denominations who unite their thoughts and actions to Scripture. In doing so, we must affirm that there are differences that are honorable, but not vital. There are believers with whom we differ on matters important, but not essential. And even as we are correcting ourselves by Scripture, we are called to seek ways to come together with those who are with us in their testimony of one Lord, one faith, and baptism. What we are not permitted to do is to unite ourselves with those who have abandoned these truths affirmed in Scripture. There is one faith. We're committed to one faith, and we have, Paul, uh, speaking of the Lord, says, we have experienced one baptism. We've experienced one baptism. Now, what does Paul mean here? Again, the New Testament uses the word baptism in a variety of ways. I don't think... Some people believe he's talking about spirit baptism. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, the Spirit baptizes you and places you in the membership of the universal body. I don't think he's talking about spirit baptism like he does in 1 Corinthians 12 because he already talked about the work of the Spirit. I don't think he's talking about water baptism here. That, that could be what he's talking about. Some people think he's talking about water baptism as the ordinance that you, that you undergo when you become a follower of Christ that is a public testimony of your commitment to Jesus Christ. I don't think that's what he's talking about here because if he's talking about ordinances, why doesn't he say anything about the Lord's Supper? Harold Honer again says, I hope he's not talking about water baptism here because water baptism has been one of the least unifying things in the whole church. Hmm. I think when he talks about baptism here that the Apostle Paul has in mind our identification with Christ. This is not one of the things that we uh, think about often we think of the word baptism, but the New Testament uses the word baptism at times to talk about what it means to be identified with somebody. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says to the Israelites that they were all baptized into Moses. That is, they were identified with Moses. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says that we are baptized into Christ. What does he mean? He means that when we become followers of Christ by faith, God identifies us with Christ and we receive um, association or credit for Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You know that as we walk in this world, we are naturally under a sentence of death. We are in rebellion against God, our Creator. We have chosen to go our own way in rejection of Him. And we deserve to die. Christ came and He died in our place on the cross, suffering for us. 
He was buried and He rose again. When you become the follower of Jesus Christ by faith, when you turn to God and recognize your sin and His holiness and what Christ has done on the cross for your behalf and you trust, place your trust in it, God identifies you with Jesus Christ and His death gets credited to you and His resurrection gets credited with you and you're baptized into Him. You're identified with Him. Now, um, when we baptize somebody in water, when we do the ordinance, we do it to symbolize, and I'm sure I've mentioned this before, our identification with Christ. This is why we immerse people, because we believe it most closely lives out this association. We're buried with Christ through baptism. We're risen to walk in newness of life. But Paul's main point here in this passage is that if you're in Christ, we are all of us together with Him, in Him. Our union with each other is not centered first and foremost on our location, although it's convenient that we live close by. It would be hard for us all to be members of Grace Baptist Church of Pittsburgh. But that's not centered first and foremost in our location. It's not centered first and foremost in our worship style. It's not centered first and foremost in our preference for buildings or the quality of our children's programs. It is centered first and foremost in Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, finally, Paul turns his attention to God the Father. God the Father. Unity is the result of the work of the Heavenly Father. There is one God and Father of all. And the word all might be puzzling here, I suppose. Is, is Paul talking about everybody in the whole planet, the universal fatherhood of God? I don't think so. I think here he's talking about all believers. Um, especially because of what happens in the next line, which I'll sh- show you in a minute. We are united together because we're part of one family and God the Father is our Father. And Paul describes this Father's work in three phases. First, this one Father is over all. He's over all. Which is a reminder of His sovereignty over us. We're together under God the Father's reign. It is at the Father's good pleasure that we who His children, who are related by blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus, gladly unite ourselves together. This union was God's idea and to be rightly related to God is to pursue this union. You can see how silly it is for some people who say, well, I'm spiritual, but I just don't like church. Or I'm religious, or uh, maybe even, I follow Jesus, just not to that church. It's a silly statement. Because Paul is saying here, You cannot claim to love Jesus and ignore His body. You cannot claim to follow God and refuse to obey His declaration that we're to pursue unity with one another. It's an impossible statement to make. God is over all. Secondly, God works through all. He works through all. In Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are prepared, uh, God has prepared in advance works for us to do. It is God's intention that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, your life will overflow with grace and kindness and patience and mercy and courage in other people's lives. And God is working through you to accomplish that. It's a different way to to think about your greeting ministry, isn't it? Or your uh, nursery work. Or the telephone calls that you make during the week to encourage other people. God working through me to encourage someone else. 
Third, God works in all, it says. He works in all. This is a reminder of his intimate presence with us. Jonathan Edwards says that one of the joys that will be ours in heaven is that we will see Jesus Christ in one another. Someday Christ is going to come and we're going to see Him as He is and John says we're going to be like Him. And in each of us, Jesus Christ will be evident. And one of the joys of heaven will be me seeing Jesus Christ in you and you seeing Jesus Christ in me. That's what's going to make heaven so happy. This verse is a call to appreciate that and to recognize that now we're far from perfect. (laughs) But there's a glimpse every now and then in us of the glory of God. Our unity is as big as Himself, as big as God Himself. It extends from all three members of the Trinity and it's, it's the product of their working, which is why when Paul says, do everything you can, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit, he's not asking us to do something huge and colossal. Not in comparison to the source of that oneness. Do what you can, Paul says. Do everything that you can in patience and humility and gentleness and forbearance and love. And sometimes that will feel really hard. But all of your efforts will be small in comparison to the great God who has called us toward one another. This is one of the ways that we live out the truth that God has called us to Himself through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and and our confession is uh, Paul has this grand vision for us uh, for why we pursue unity with one another. And we confess that we are slow at times to appreciate and to value that. Uh, Father, our, our prayer is that you would do the work that you uh, started in us and that you would magnify the greatness of yourself in our lives. That we would see you as ever more weighty and significant and worthy of our allegiance. And seeing you that way, we will, in submission, reach out to one another. So we ask this morning that you would do the miraculous work of magnifying yourself, um, showing us the supremacy of, of who you are, that it might be evident in our church. We confess that you are more worthy uh, and more, uh, um, more worthy of our allegiance than our own experiences and our own needs and our own desires. Help us to walk with one another with that in mind. It will take miraculous work, but we're glad uh, that we have the Holy Spirit. And we're glad, too, for the promise that comes that by our love for one another, those around us will see and know that we are followers of Jesus Christ. It is our aim to please him. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.